You may be seated. Let's uh, go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Um, Father in heaven, um, you are the God who took sinners like us, who were undeserving and unworthy of your goodness and your grace and your favor. That's exactly why it was grace. It's why we can come to you. You made a way for us, and you made your word known to us that we might respond and hear and and be saved. And so, Father, we pray the same for our world this morning, that, that you would raise up messengers, that you would raise up workers for uh, your harvest. And we pray in particular for places like the Faroe Islands this morning, Father, and for the Falklands, where there is a, uh, a history of, of faithfulness, there is a history of a knowledge, a saving knowledge, of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But like many places, like here, secularism and, and the deceit of this world have hardened hearts, and we pray, Father, for a revival in these places. We pray that your churches there would be faithful and not afraid to speak up the good news. Father, we pray for um, Iraq and uh, the Varnesses who are traveling there this summer, we pray that uh, you would strengthen them for the, uh, the task ahead of them. Um, we, we pray for the team that they're traveling with, and, and we ask, Father, that it would bear much fruit, that they would have uh, conversations that lead to life, that seeds would be planted, that others would be watered, and that maybe in your grace there would even be a harvesting we pray, Father, for our team that's going to Panama this summer and, and ask that you would prepare them for the work that they have to do. Um, we pray for uh, those missionaries and churches that are on the ground right now uh, serving the people of Panama with the word of hope, the word of life, and that our team would be able to augment what they are doing to extend their reach and that we would learn how we can be better and bigger participants in your world mission effort. Father, we pray these things even as we uh, turn to your word in a, uh, a dark and, and at points hopeless seemingly passage, knowing that you are the God of hope who brings light into darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, we are we're concluding here a study on 1 Samuel, uh, so if you guys want to turn your Bibles to the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, that's where we're going to be. Um, and if you didn't get them last, last week, uh, there is a, a card on the back table of, of all the sermons coming up for the summer, so I encourage you to pick that up. Uh, that's in yellow, is it yellow? Is that up there? Um, Kicked off last week with uh, Caleb Weaver preached from Isaiah. We're going to have a little mini-series from Isaiah 
Uh, that's the first of four. Uh, they're going to be spread out during the summer. We're finishing up 1 Samuel now. We're going to be uh, talking about the book of Titus next, starting next week. And we have a little bit of a topical series towards the back end of the summer about what it is we're supposed to be doing when we gather together in worship. So hope you guys check those things out. Um, excited for this uh, summer trimester. But let's uh, turn our attention to 1 Samuel 31 right now. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Aminadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body on the wall of Bashan. And when the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Yavish and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Yavish and fasted seven days. You probably heard, may have heard, I don't know, probably, many of you heard. Uh, on Friday, May 19th, Tim Keller Pastor, writer, evangelist, ministry leader, professor, died from pancreatic cancer. He died. He didn't pass away. I think that would be too polite. It's not as if he gradually floated off beyond our perception. We might be tempted to say his death was gradual, but that's not really true. It was sudden. All death is sudden. Some might have a better sense that it's coming. Tim Keller received his diagnosis about three years ago. He certainly knew death was a likely outcome. But in recent interviews, he himself stated that he prayed at least twice a day for complete healing. It wasn't that he was expecting it per se, but he also wasn't doubting it. He said, God can do it, or he doesn't have to do it. Look, he knows. He said he'd seen too much to believe that God couldn't do it, but in the end... He knew that God knew best. He didn't know what God wanted or on what timing. Just that God was good and God was sovereign. 
And then death was sudden on Friday. And then Keller's spirit left this world. A number of years ago, John Piper wrote a little book, Don't Waste Your Cancer, born out of his fight with cancer. Tim Keller didn't waste his cancer. Uh, Six months ago, Keller released what appears to be his last book, Forgive. Why should I and how can I? Imagine staring into what your doctor tells you is certain death and yet resolutely trusting that if God wants to heal, he will heal. And meanwhile, it's good It's good to keep speaking and writing of God. Our passage this morning speaks about death, and in particular, the death of a man who was quite different from Tim Keller. It's the death of Saul, the first king of Israel. They had this in common. Saul was, of course, famous. And Keller grew to have a modicum of fame in in his life because some of his books were bestsellers and the church he helped start grew exceptionally large in this massive media environment of New York City. But from from there, they they really diverged. Saul had riches and power. Tim Keller had neither, although his skills would have allowed him to have both. Saul was particularly noted for being tall and exceptionally beautiful, and Tim Keller was, I think, fair to say, very ordinary, very plain, both in look and speech. Saul had everything the world says we should want to have. And he dies. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the tragedy of death. This is the end of 1 Samuel, and, and in a sense, this series, uh, but it's not the end of the story. And, and you know, I'll just put that up front. Zach made mention of this earlier, that the story continues into, you know, you'd guess 2 Samuel. It was probably broken up for the same reason we break up a lot of books. It just got too long for one book, too long for one scroll, and so they put it on two scrolls. And so one of our growth groups is going to be studying the continuation of this story. Uh, this summer. So if you aren't committed to a growth group yet, maybe you want to check that one out. But the, the last several chapters of this book have, have had a different feel to them. So much of the, the middle of 1 Samuel was about this strained relationship between Saul and David, his son-in-law, whom God had chosen to replace him. And Saul had turned on David and and was relentlessly trying to hunt him down. And in chapter 26, David had an opportunity to attack and kill Saul, and he didn't take it. But he made it known to Saul, he made it clear to Saul what he could have done. And after that, the two men went their separate ways. Their stories continue independent of each other. Chapter 27 focused on David, 28 focused on Saul, 29 and 30 on David, and now 31 Our attention is back on Saul one final time. The Philistines are attacking the Israelites at the top of the chapter. If you've been following along, you know this is a battle we have been anticipating for three chapters of the book. For three chapters, we have been reading about what is going on leading up to this war and while it was going on. And then finally, we see the war itself in the first seven verses of our passage. We're forced to look at three groups in this section, the Philistines, the Israelites, and the house of Saul. And in the first verse, the Philistines attack, and the Israelites flee. 
and the result is a tremendous amount of death along the slopes of Mount Gilboa. That's it. The Philistines attack, the Israelites flee, the Israelites die. One verse. The last time the Israelites fled in battle before the Philistines was all the way back in chapter 4. We covered that, but not part of this series. We covered that as part of a series back in 2018. The Israelites had no king back then. They thought they had no one to fight their battles for them. Very soon, after the second time they flee from the Philistines, that's going to be true again. One verse later, the Philistines have hunted down Saul's sons, Jonathan and Aminadab and Malkishua. Jonathan was the great friend of David, who swore he would be by David's side when God made David king. But it wasn't to be. And there's this irony with Saul's other sons. Abinadab means something like, my father is noble. Malkishua means something like, my king is salvation. Their father and king, however, was about to die an ignoble death, and there would be no salvation. Saul gets caught in the thick of the action, but the archer's arrows find him. He's struck down, and he pleads with his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. That's pretty sanitized. See, Saul knows if he's found bleeding on the battlefield by the Philistines, they will likely torture him and make a cruel spectacle of him, and he would rather be dead. But his bodyguard won't do it. It's not clear why. Maybe like David, he refused to harm God's anointed king. But whatever the reason, he won't do it. And so Saul musters the strength to kill himself. And seeing that, his bodyguard does the same thing, either out of loyalty or out of fear what will happen to him, what will be done to him. And with that, a significant portion of the house of Saul is effectively destroyed. One day, one battle, all the power and the riches and the glory of the kingship are gone. And then in sort of an inverse, a reverse pattern of, of verse 1, the Israelites flee, but this time it's not the soldiers, it's the residents of the nearby towns that recognize the battle has been lost. And then the Philistines, notorious for their, for their vicious raids, would come their way next. And so the Philistines simply took up residency in these nearby towns. And that's, that's no small deal. You can imagine the, the human toll of that, hundreds or thousands of refugees leaving everything, being reduced to nothing. But there's also a theological side to that. There's a spiritual side to that. God had commanded Israel to take that land to make it into a sanctuary of peace and blessing where he, the Lord, would be worshipped. And now God's people were abandoning it, abandoning the land that he had told them to take. And all of this, all of this is so sudden and it's told just so matter-of-factly. It reads like a newspaper account, not even a good, salacious newspaper account. It's just, just the facts. That's how Saul's life ends suddenly and without fanfare. He dies apart from his family, apart from his riches, apart from the throne of power. 
just an armor bearer and a bodyguard for company, and even that man cannot or will not give him comfort in his last moments. I want to suggest that there are three tragedies at play in Saul's death. The first tragedy, it might be the most obvious one if you've been following along, is that Saul died because he had rejected God. Saul's rejection of God can be seen in in stages. You might remember them in chapter 12. Saul rejected God's personal command to wait for the prophet Samuel who would offer sacrifices and tell Saul what God wanted him to do. But Saul took it upon himself to offer sacrifices to God, essentially choosing to worship God the way he wanted to worship God instead of the way God wanted to be worshipped. And Samuel told Saul that God would remove any possibility of a dynasty. You're king, but the kingship ends here. Then just two chapters later, Saul was celebrating a huge victory over the Amalekites. Only God had told him to entirely destroy the Amalekites and their possessions. But Saul had tried to hold on to the best of the goods of the Amalekites and spared their king as some sort of trophy of war. He had rejected God's explicit commands for the sake of his own glory. And Samuel told Saul that God was going to remove him as king. And then in chapter 28, just before today's episode takes place, we learn that Saul was so terrified about these Philistine preparations for war that he desperately wanted to hear from God. But those who don't follow God don't typically hear from God, and Saul didn't. And so in his desperation, he went to a necromancer. He went to a spiritist to raise the spirit of the prophet Samuel so that he might have some advice on what to do. Necromancy and and all occult practices were explicitly forbidden by God's law. And maybe to everyone's surprise, Samuel actually shows up, but he doesn't give Saul any advice. He only warned him that God would allow the Philistines to kill him. And so you can draw a direct line between Saul's rejection of God and Saul's death. It's God's patience running out on the one-time king. That's something we looked at before. Um, It bears repeating. I won't go into as much detail. But even in this series, we looked at this idea. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, he asked this rhetorical question of wicked people. Do you suppose, oh man that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Saul had had a long and prosperous life that was filled with God's kindness. That kindness, that patience was displayed by God in hopes that Saul who had turned away from God, would now turn toward God and away from the pursuits of his heart. And that didn't happen. Saul presumed on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, and he did not repent, and so he died. That's a tragedy. But let me suggest that Saul's rejection of God is actually something that points to a second bigger tragedy. 
See, Saul isn't really that unique. When the Apostle Paul asked those rhetorical questions in Romans chapter 2, he wasn't asking them to Hitler. He wasn't asking them to Kim Jong-un. He was asking them of ordinary people, regular people. Because as he would add a, a few sentences later, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that is our fundamental problem. It's not a lack of power. Saul had that. It's not a lack of money. Saul had that. It's not a lack of sustainability or economic mobility. And our fundamental problem is not those other guys, whoever they were. Saul faced foreign threats his whole reign, but he never had any reason to worry about them until he turned his back on God. Saul never had a rival or a competitor until he made himself one. None of these were Saul's fundamental problem, and none of these are our fundamental problem. It's not politics. It's not who will be president. It's not the stock market. It's not what's happening in Sudan. It's not climate change. It's not rising criminality. Our fundamental problem is us. Saul's death may have been immediately caused by God's patience running out, but in a more basic sense, Saul died for the same reason that Tim Keller died, and the same reason that you will die and I will die. We have to. We're told in the Bible that when God made the first man, he made that man and soon his wife in his image to reflect something of God and God's goodness and his rule in the universe. And he made them to be in relationship with him. They lived in communion with God. God even promised them eternal life with him. God set before them both life and death in the Garden of Eden. But if they trusted in God's word and God's promises, they would enjoy his presence and his life forever. The death that God set before them, you might know the story, came in the form of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. If those people ate from that tree, God said they died. And one day they were tempted to do just that. Why? Because they were told that such knowledge would make them like God. It's interesting. They were already made in his image. Some people take that and they, and they spin this idea that God didn't want us to know good and evil, that that's what the story is about. And I don't think that's the right interpretation. I don't think God wanted us to know good from evil apart from him. In relationship to him, in communion with him, he would teach us and show us what was right and what was good. But the first humans wanted to usurp that authority. And so they ate and they died. But their death wasn't what we might expect. They were banished from God's presence, removed from communion with God. Their death was first and foremost spiritual. They were cut off from God and access to his life. Of course, they did die physically, too. And if you read Genesis chapter 5, 
you get a list of their death and their descendants' deaths like a roll call of the dearly departed. And if you hadn't heard, that death toll has kept increasing ever since. Because each of them, just like each of us, has in our own ways done things to break communion with God. We haven't kept his ways. We haven't even kept our own ways, if we're honest. Each of us has violated our own consciences more than once, to say nothing of God's conscience. And so we follow in the footsteps of our spiritual ancestors. We die. And it's because ultimately we died a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. And that happens well before we make it to Lakeview Cemetery. Sometimes we see the death of a particularly wicked man or woman and we think to ourselves, they got what they deserved. Maybe it's a murderer who's shot by the police or it's a child molester who's killed by prisoners or, or maybe it's just a very foolish person like the Russian soldier who last year spotted a MacBook, stole it, and hit it by replacing a ballistic plate from his body armor with the laptop only to be killed in a battle outside of Kiev because laptops, even, even MacBooks, don't stop bullets. We get a perverse satisfaction from those kind of stories, but as Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 13, we are mistaken if we think that such people uniquely got what they deserved. Instead, Jesus said we should think, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or to put it more personally, each death should be a reminder that death is my fate also. Today, tomorrow, in a decade, death will come. Death has to come because I have sinned. The only really unique thing about Saul's death is that we know the reason why God's patience ran out on him. I don't have the luxury of knowing that for pretty much anyone else. I only know that their day is coming. I know that my day is coming too. And all the wealth and the power and the trinkets that I amass for myself will not save me from it. There's a third tragedy here. The Israelites, they were, they were led to the slaughter and forced to abandon their homes. In an immediate sense, they'd done nothing to deserve that. Uh, while Saul's death was inevitable, as, as inevitable as mine and Tim Keller's, which is probably the only time I'll compare myself to Tim Keller, it's timing due to his absolute rejection of God caused untold suffering for the Israelites. 
And you'd be mistaken, though, if you thought it was only or even primarily the suffering of this battle. So if you remember back to the beginning of this series, which we started in chapter 8, the idea of a king in Israel was, was an afterthought. Yahweh, the Lord, he was supposed to be the king. And when the Israelites first demanded a king, it was very much a rejection of God himself, a lack of trust that God could lead them. And nevertheless, God relented. He gave them a king. But the king wasn't supposed to be like any other king. In a way, he was supposed to be more like a, a prince leading and guiding the people under God's direction. He was supposed to be intimately familiar with God's law and, and to promote justice and righteousness. He was to lead people and point people to God. Saul didn't do that. There were a, a couple episodes, especially early in his reign, that, that were beautiful. But on the whole, Saul's efforts fell far short of what he was called to do, even murdering God's priests. In fact, maybe the mixed character of some of Saul's work as king may have been the worst part of it at all. Uh, because even bad people can often spot unadulterated evil. But when you mix a little good with the bad, it becomes hard to distinguish one from the other. And sometimes even what we might call decent people are led astray. In the end, Saul may have known the name of God, but he didn't know God. And he kept others from knowing God as a result. That is a tragedy. I think that's a part of the picture we often overlook. I, I, I know I overlook it. When we think about what do I deserve in the next life? To what extent did my actions, my inactions, my words, my lifestyle lead other people away from the glorious life of the true king. That's a tragedy. And so there's these three tragedies, we, we might say, a, a tragedy of our personal sin, a tragedy of our original sin, and a tragedy of the systemic sin that we create. It's a dark chapter. The next day after the battle, the Philistines go out to strip the slain. See, there's thousands of dead bodies on the field, and none of them were able to take their expensive armor and trinkets with them where they were going. So the practice was to go out and take what was valuable for the living. And they find Saul, and they do to Saul what Saul feared they would do to him. They took off his head and paraded it around like a trophy. They send out messengers throughout the land to tell them that the Israelite king had been vanquished and that the Philistines were now in charge. 
Verse 10 is a bit morbid, but it is true to the horrors of ancient warfare. They put his armor in the temple of Astaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. The Astaroth refers to the, the goddess Astarte, who represented love and war. And the Philistines probably saw Astarte as responsible for their victory, so they honored her with the spoils of the conquered king. And then they placed Saul's body on the wall of Bethshan. And it would have served as notice to all who passed by that Saul was dead and the Philistines would do likewise to whoever came next. But you know, what happens next is remarkable. Um, we read that when the inhabitants of Yabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Yabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Yabesh and fasted for seven days. Yabesh Gilead was a, was a walled city just on the other side of the Jordan River from Bashan. It was featured one other time in this book, all the way back in chapter 11. Just after Saul had been anointed king by Samuel, but well before there was really any central government in Israel, the Ammonites engaged in a siege on Yabesh Gilead. And Saul, though he was king, he was still really just a humble farmer. And he heard the news as he came in from the field he had been plowing. And there was a historical connection. You can read about it in the earlier uh, books of Scripture. But there was a historical connection between uh, Saul's hometown and the people of Yabesh Gilead, such that they probably saw each other as kin or family Back then, Saul showed so much promise. There was so much hope that he could be a savior of God's people. And, and on that day, he did. He did take his place as a rescuer and a deliverer. He mustered a small army and courageously launched an attack against the Ammonites and rescued the people of Yavish Gilead. It took great courage for the men of Yavish Gilead to go into what was now effectively enemy territory and simply to retrieve some bodies. Maybe they were motivated by their close connection they had with Saul, but for whatever reason, like David before, they risked their lives to honor the king that God had anointed. For better or worse, they honored God's anointed king. They honored Saul, not just by retrieving his body and the bodies of his sons, but by disposing of them in a, in a dignified manner and even burying them under a tamarisk tree, not unlike the tamarisk tree that Saul had sat under in the capital when he was governing. 
And their actions are sort of a reminder that in this bleak and, and troubled time, that there was still hope. God still had valiant men willing to live honorable lives, willing to honor God's anointed. The light wasn't out. And soon, one of your growth groups is going to be seeing this in just a couple chapters. Soon, King David, now King David, will honor the men of Yabesh Gilead for the way they honored Saul. Saul had a son, we said, named Machishua, my king is salvation. His king was not salvation. But God was bringing about a true king who would be salvation through David. The, the king wouldn't just be a rescuer from the worldly troubles of foreign invaders like the Philistines. He would provide deliverance from that most foundational problem of all, our sin that separates us from God. And so he would be able to deliver his people from death. When the Philistines killed Saul, they sent messengers out with the good news. It was good news to them, at least. The Greek translation of the Old Testament says they evangelized the Philistine people. Did you know that's where that word comes from? The idea of spreading good news was about announcing the great victories of war. Runners might be dispatched from the battle to tell the people back home the news, the good news of victory. But we who are Christians have good news. That a descendant of David fought a great battle against sin and against death, and he won. That's the good news. King Jesus won the battle. He defeated sin first in living his life surrounded by temptation and yet never surrendering to it. He lived a life of righteousness. And Jesus was like us in every way except this. He didn't deserve to die. But he did. He went to the cross and he offered his life. Though he was God in the flesh and he could have summoned the armies of heaven to rescue him, he didn't. He died. And he died because he was paying the penalty for the sins of others. For his people. For those who would call him their king. For those who would honor the Christ, the Messiah the anointed one. He rose from the dead because death had to be defeated also. And even as he rose to eternal life, he promises to raise 
to eternal life those who come to him. The Philistines had good news of a king who could not save, and so he died. That was their good news. But we have good news of a king who died in order to save. And that's why, although every death is the result of tragedy, the tragedy of sin, not every death has to be tragic itself. Jesus' death was the result of tragedy. But his death was not tragic itself. It brought life. And so those who enter into Christ's death, their deaths though the result of tragedy, do not need to be tragic. For those who call Jesus king, who honor God's anointed, death is merely the chance to be with their king until the day he raises the dead and judges the world and brings heaven to earth. Death is sudden. Death is sure. But it doesn't need to be tragic. The English poet John Donne knew death was not tragic. Placing his hope in Christ, he wrote, One short sleep past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. And that's why I think Tim Keller's family can report to us that his last words were these. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. But whether your death is merely the result of tragedy or is itself a tragedy comes down to this. Whether your king is salvation. Whether you Honor God's anointed, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you help us whoever we might be, wherever uh, we are from, wherever station we are in, would you help us to have the introspection that our salvation would be sure, to test ourselves, to know whether we are in the faith as the Apostle Paul instructed us. That we would truly flock to Jesus as our King, the author of salvation, who died to defeat death. Give us the confidence in Him 
that no matter whether we die walking out this door or whether we die in 50 years from this day, that our death is not a tragedy. Merely the results of a tragedy that Jesus himself has redeemed. Father, with those who are not in that number, let go of whatever false and worldly hopes and confidences they have and place their only hope for salvation in King Jesus. And give us the peace to know that there is nothing to fear about our end here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.